at the 1910 General Assembly of the Northern Presbyterian Church, the topic of discussion was that unbelief and liberalism, modernism, was drowning the church. And so the assembly overwhelmingly adopted the five fundamentals, which every Christian minister, every Christian must heartily accept and proclaim. These five fundamentals were listed as the inerrancy of Scripture, the virgin birth, or more actually, conception of Jesus, the substitutionary atonement of Christ, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, and the reality of the miracles of Jesus. Today we're going to examine the virgin conception of Christ and God's providence. Now, last week we began looking at the providence of God in the incarnation. And let me remind you some of the things we stated last week. The first thing that has to be stated is God has a plan. Scripture calls it his sovereign eternal decree. We are told in Ephesians 1.11 that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. This plan of God's, his decree, hatched before the foundation of the world in eternity past, is holy, wise, unchangeable, and for his own glory. But then the working out of that plan, as we pointed out last week, anybody can make a plan. Anybody can state a decree, but can they work it out perfectly? And that's God's providence, is for all time, God has been working out every single aspect of his plan. This is his providence. Our children learn on Wednesday night in our catechids class, the answer to the catechism question, what is God's providence? The answer comes back, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving, and governing all his creatures and all their actions. Providence means that God rules over everything and does so according to his eternal plan. He currently rules over 8 billion people and all their actions and countless billions of others in a realm beyond the grave, and he does so with ease. Nothing is too small or too large to escape God's governing hand, his providence. For example, small things, we're told that every hair on your head is numbered. We're told in Proverbs 16 that the lot, every time it's cast into the lap or onto the table, is under God's control. And then large things, the raising up and putting down of, of rulers, of nations with hundreds of millions of people, we are told, is under God's command. Providence can only be true if you have a God like we have. Providence can only be true if God is sovereign, having the right and power to do as he pleases. Providence can only be true if God is omnipotent, having no limitations on his power. Providence can only be true if God is omnipresent, if he can be in all places at all times with his whole person. And providence can only be true if God is omniscient, if he knows all things, past, present, and especially future. Scripture puts a great weight on this issue of providence and repeatedly commands us to meditate on it, that the believer is meant to be astounded. And so for the Sunday mornings of December, we are meditating 
on the providence of God, especially in the incarnation. So last week we looked at the providence of God in the preparation of a forerunner, talking about how the Lord prepared John the Baptist to be the one who would go before our Lord Jesus. This morning we're going to look at the providence of God in the virgin conception of Christ. Next Lord's Day, God helping us, we will look at the providence of God in the journey to Bethlehem, the journey that should not have happened the journey that no right-thinking person would take. And then at our Christmas Eve service, we'll look at the providence of God in the visitors who come to see the infant Jesus. And finally, on December 25th, Christmas morning, and yes, we will be worshiping morning and evening on December 25th, we'll look at the providence of God in the protection of the infant Jesus from soldiers and mercenaries who would seek to kill him. Scripture gives us several reasons why we must meditate on God's providence, meditation on the mighty acts of God and his intervention on behalf of his people makes the believer want to worship, we are told. Meditation on the providence of God is our comfort in times of trouble. Meditating on the providence of God is the antidote to fear and worry. Meditation on the providence of God is prudent since God judges those who ignore his providence. And meditation on the providential works of God is the mark, we are told in Scripture, of the wise man. Now what we saw last week, what we'll see more of today, is God gives prophetic clues of what he's going to do in the future. He embeds history with what he'll do in his providence. So for example, last week we saw that the Lord prophesied a Redeemer 4,500 years before the fact. We saw as well that he prophesied he would send a forerunner before that Redeemer 500 years before the fact. Today we'll see that God miraculously prophesies what he will do in regards to the conception and birth of the Redeemer for a problem has been posed in history by the fall. How in the world can God send a Redeemer who will be a human won't he be tainted with sin? So we prepare to open the word of God. Let's seek the help now of the Holy Spirit. Ever gracious God, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. And so now in this moment, make us hungry for this heavenly food, that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. Amen. So many of God's providential acts, the mightiest of them, were prophesied. Think about some of the prophecies that God gives us in the Old Testament about what he's going to do providentially. Now, when I speak of prophecies, I'm speaking of predictive prophecies, the authoritative declaration of specific events that will occur in the distant future. There are over 2,000 of them in the Bible, over 2,000 thousand prophecies of what God will do. And prophecies are simply telling you what God's plan is and how he's going to work it out by his providence. These 2,000 prophecies are specific and detailed. They're not guesses or conjectures. Rather, they are the absolute accurate foretelling of future events. What makes these so astounding is that God is binding himself to certain actions. He's placing his reputation on the line, a hundred 
200, 1,000, 2,000 times if his prophetic word does not come to pass. Think about some of these prophecies. The mother promise of the Old Testament is, of course, Genesis 3.15, where God, immediately after the fall of Adam, promises a redeemer. That promise, oddly enough, in Genesis 3.15, was made to the serpent. And the promise goes this way. I will. It would be 4,500 years until this prophecy is fulfilled. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The date of that prophecy was 4,500 B.C. Some of us make promises in the morning to our children and don't keep them that evening. The Lord makes a promise 4,500 years before the fact. And the Lord carefully worked out global and personal events to that end until it could be said when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. The Messiah did come and crushed the serpent's head. And the Messiah's heel was bruised on the cross. Or think of another prophecy in Genesis 49, where God specifically states that the Messiah, his Redeemer, would come from the tribe of Judah. That prophecy was, was given in, say, 4600 or in 1600 B.C. The prophecy was fulfilled when we are told of the genealogies of Jesus in Matthew 1 and Luke 3 that Jesus specifically came from the tribe of Judah. Or prophecies nearer to the fact, a thousand years before the incarnation, in a seemingly random toss-off prophecy in Psalm 22, the psalmist writes that the Messiah would be crucified and lots would be cast for his clothing. We're told in the gospel, both of Matthew and Matthew 27 and John 19, that this prophecy was fulfilled. And what makes this prophecy all the more amazing is that when it was given a thousand years before the incarnation of Jesus, crucifixion was unknown to the Jews. The author of Psalm 22, David, had never seen, perhaps never even heard of a crucifixion. But he's simply serving as the mouthpiece of God. Or there's the prophecy that comes 700 years before the incarnation in Micah chapter 5. And the prophecy is given that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, Ephrathah. And surely everyone who read this said, how is God going to pull this off? Because that would be much like the prophecy coming that the Messiah would be born in Punkintown. Because Bethlehem, Ephrathah was nowhere. Nothing important could ever happen there. And then there was the prophecy we looked at last week, given in Isaiah 40 and Malachi 3, that the Messiah would be preceded by a messenger. And of course, Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 7, that prophecy was fulfilled in the person of John the Baptist. But just a moment ago, Pastor Anderson read for you those words of Isaiah 7.14. And the reason why I ask him to only have our Old Testament reading consist of one verse is I want you to be struck by that, not to see any of the other details surrounding, but to be struck by this, that the prophecy is incredibly clear, where God puts everything on the line and says, judge my truthfulness, my veracity by this. The Redeemer that I'm going to send, he will be born 
of a virgin. Now, to be more specific, let me delve even deeper into who this Redeemer would be. To be more specific, the Old Testament repeatedly prophesies that the Messiah would be a human. Because there are some who, before the birth of a Messiah, thought, well, the only way that a Messiah can come and save us, it will have to be somebody who's not tainted with Adam's sin. And so, therefore, the Messiah to come will not be a man. He'll not be a human being like you and I. He'll be something like a superman. But I want you to see how often the Old Testament prophesies, no, he's going to be real man. Completely human. So, for example, in Micah 5, verse 2, the verse I cited a moment ago, when we are told the Messiah would come from Ephrathah, listen to what we are told in Micah 5, 2. We are told that the Messiah would be born. Only humans are born. The prophecy comes, you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you're little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me, the one to be ruler in Israel, and here's a clue about his person, whose going forths are from old, even from everlasting. And so the sharp reader would have picked up, this is going to be a human who's eternal. How could those two things be? He must be the God-man. He must be both human and God. And again, in Isaiah, all through Isaiah, there's no indication that this Redeemer who will come to be to be born will be anything other than a human being. Pastor Anderson read Isaiah 7, 14, where the Lord ties himself to the sign and says, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive. That's an important word. And bear a son. And then he writes two chapters later in Isaiah 9, unto us a child is born. And so repeatedly, God is saying, I'm telling you the Redeemer to come. He'll be born. He'll be a real human being. So much so will he be human that in Isaiah 53, we're told in great detail that the Messiah must undergo physical miseries that only a real human being can undergo. So we're told in Isaiah 53, he will grow up as a tender plant. And we are told even about his appearance. Every rendering and appearance you've ever seen of Jesus has been false. I'm not saying that to be provocative or shocking. Because every rendering you've ever seen makes Jesus something about him attractive. But Isaiah says, oh, he'll be human. In fact, he'll be completely unattractive. In Isaiah 53.10, the prophet says, He has no loveliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. And of course, Isaiah is largely talking about the visage, the countenance of Jesus after the beatings, after the blood, after the crown of thorns, that he's swollen and disfigured, blood and spit caked everywhere on him. And so Isaiah goes on and says, and this can only be said of a human, he was bruised for our iniquities. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. 
And then only a human can be buried. And Isaiah goes on to say they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. In fact, I want to I go much deeper. I want to convince you this morning because there are some who their way of solving the conundrum is to say, I, I just really don't think Jesus was a real man. I know that some deny his deity, but I'm, I'm just going to set his humanity aside. This is what makes the miracle of the virgin birth so astounding is he was completely human. Let me tell you 12 ways we know he was human. 12 reasons. Jesus is truly human in the fullest sense of that term. He became all we are in every detail except sin. But sin's not essential to true humanity. Weren't Adam and Eve fully human before they sinned? And so let me point out 12 ways that Jesus is fully human. And this is what's going to make the miracle of the virgin birth so stunning. The first way we know he's human is he had human parentage, at least one human parent. For in Luke chapter 1, the angel says to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son. Jesus had a mom, a human mom. Secondly, evidence and proof that he was a human he had a human body. When you look at your hands and your feet and, and your ears and every body part that you have, Jesus had. So much so that we are told in Matthew chapter 26, his body, it's a word that speaks of from toenails to the top of his head, his body was anointed for burial. A third aspect that demonstrates Jesus' full humanity is he had a human soul. A reasonable soul, our confession calls it meaning, by soul meaning a mind, will, and emotions. Just as you have a human soul, mind, will, and emotions, so did Jesus. So much so that Jesus could say to Peter, James, and John in the Garden of Gethsemane, he could use this powerful word in Matthew 26, the night before his arrest, he could say, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful. The fourth characteristic that proves to you the humanity of Jesus. He had a human appearance. When you looked at him, he didn't look like there was some sort of aura around him, some sort of glow. In fact, not only did he look human, he looked like a Jew. So again, put away all your California blonde surfer pictures of Jesus. Jesus was shorter, brown, swarthy, dark curly hair. So, and we know that because when he met the Samaritan woman and he asked her for a drink, she responded without Jesus telling her anything about his pedigree. When he said to her in John chapter 4, she said, how is it that you being a Jew ask a drink from me? How did she know that? Because he looked like it. He had human appearance. A fifth way that we know of the humanity of Jesus, he had physical growth. If you go into our kitchen and you open up our pantry door, there are little lines with dates and names put on them. Some of you have things like this. And we have things like Sarah, October of 2000 on there. And all the way up to when here is, John, here is James at six foot tall. And we threw a big party because of that. 
and we were marking the physical growth of our children. Jesus said the exact same thing. We're told in Luke 2.52 that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature. He grew. He had a strictly normal physical development through puberty into adulthood. How much we would have missed if the second Adam had appeared on earth mature like the first Adam did. Instead, this Jesus, as a true human, passed through all the stages of human experience from infancy to manhood. He has experienced your life. A sixth way we know his humanity. He prayed repeatedly in the Gospels. In fact, this may be the most, the most constant drumbeat affirmation about our Jesus is his rich and full prayer life. All times of the day, all places. And he was caught praying in Luke chapter 11 by his disciples. And we were told he was praying and his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. In John 17, you have the high priestly prayer of Jesus. You have a full rich transcript of how our Lord prayed. And it's astounding the things he prays for. He doesn't pray for Aunt Helen's big toe. He prays for the unity of the church and his own glorification. A seventh way that we know that Jesus was a real human being. We are told that he was hungry. The Monday after Palm Sunday, we're told that in Matthew chapter 21, in the morning as he returned to the city, he was hungry. There are going to be some of you within the next few minutes, especially under the power of suggestion, now start thinking, I'm kind of hungry myself. Well, my friend, Jesus experienced as a real human being that sensation that you are experiencing, especially when he fasted for weeks in the gospel. An eighth evidence that he was truly human. Now, remember, there's a big payoff for all of these evidences of his humanity. He was thirsty. What happens when you walk a long distance uphill in a dry, hot Middle Eastern climate? You get thirsty. And so we're told in John chapter 4 that when the woman of Samaria came to draw water, Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Why? Because he was thirsty. A ninth evidence that he was a real human being. Jesus grew weary. Frequently we are told about the tiredness of Jesus. In John chapter 4 again, at, at the setup for his encounter with the woman at the well, we, are, we read these words, Jesus being wearied from his journey, sat down by the well. There's nothing sinful about being tired. It's, it's the normal state of our human bodies. They wear out as inactivity. And then a tenth evidence that Jesus was fully human. He slept. Laid his head on a pillow at night and slept. And then there are those times that the gospels document for us where he was so tired when he'd been drained from all his labors, his ministry and his interactions with not hundreds, but oftentimes thousands of people. How tired must a man be if he can crawl into a fishing boat and fall asleep when that boat is filled with noisy men in a storm? That's tiredness. We are told in Matthew chapter 8, 
When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was covered with waves. But he was asleep, and his disciples had to come and awaken him. Eleventh evidence that our Jesus was fully human. He suffered. He knows what pain is like. When you've used the statement before to to relatives and loved ones, when you think no one understands, and you think you you don't understand these, these migraines, these pains in my knee, these other sorts of pains. There's one who does. Because we're told as a definitive, descriptive statement of Jesus in 1 Peter 4, meant to impress you with his full humanity. Christ suffered for us in the flesh. A 12th statement that demonstrates his humanity. He bled. Only humans have blood. Jesus had a blood type. We're told in John 19, as he hung there on the cross, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And maybe at this point, what we ought to ask and answer is why? Why did Jesus take on real humanity? There are several reasons. First, he took on real flesh. He became a real human to reveal the invisible God. In John chapter 1, John tells us, No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son, who's in the bosom of the Father, has declared him. We only know God in and through Jesus Christ. And so the first reason he took on humanity is to reveal what God is like. The second reason he took on a real human body and nature is to make a sacrifice for sins as a true substitute in our flesh, to act for us. He did for the race what Adam failed to do. The second Adam obeyed the law perfectly and did this on behalf of his people. His humanity was the basis for his being the true substitute for sinners. He, as a human being, substituted for you. Thirdly, the reason why he took on real humanity was to provide an example for believers. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. We now have a living flesh and blood picture of a life that pleases God in the flesh. A fourth reason why Jesus took on real humanity, I alluded to it a moment ago, is to sympathize with us in our weakness. This is why the writer of Hebrews is is so interested in being so clear in Hebrews 4. We do not have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses. The writer of Hebrews goes on and says, but he was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus worked hard and sweat. He's been tired. He's been rejected by family members. He's known every sort of weakness, every sort of sadness that a man can know. And so when we come to him and pour out our hearts, broken hearts in prayer, he doesn't stifle a yawn. He sympathizes. But a fifth reason why he took on real humanity is to provide us with a high priest. 
The writer of Hebrews once again says in Hebrews 2, In all things he had to be made like his brethren. That means real humanity. In all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Only as a man can Jesus faithfully represent us to God, which is why Paul says there is one mediator between God and man, the man, the human being, Christ Jesus. So far this morning, I've only repeated assertedly, asserted repeatedly that Jesus was prophesied to be a real human and that that prophecy was fulfilled and verified. But what makes the humanity of Jesus so stupendous is that God in his providence arranged every circumstance so that Jesus was born without the aid of a human father. Look back to Luke chapter 1, the passage that Pastor Anderson read in your hearing a moment ago. In everything we read in Scripture states this. Jesus had a normal birth, excruciating for his mother, from a normal human woman with a gestation period of nine months. And this is when you should hold your breath. We've heard it so many times we've lost the shock and wonder at this statement. All of this happened through a mother who had no sexual relations with a man but became pregnant. This pregnancy was a miracle wrought by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary where the second person of the Godhead took to himself a genuine and complete human nature and was born nine months later as a man without in any way surrendering his divine nature. Theologians call it the hypostatic union. But I want you to look carefully and see what is asserted in Scripture. As evangelicals, we believe deeply in sola scriptura that the Bible alone is our one rule for faith and practice. It's the rule that trumps all other rules. And so what does the Bible say? Look at Luke 1 verse 30. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, here it comes. You will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son. She'll call his name Jesus. And he goes on to boast in this Christ. And Mary, when she can open her mouth in shock, says to the angel, she asks the question that everyone in this room would ask if you're placed in the same position. How? How can it happen? Since I do not know a man. And the word know there, of course, is the, the word of familiarity, marital sexual familiarity that's used of Adam and Eve. How can this be since I don't know a man? And the angel answers. Look at verse 35. Here's the answer. Here's how the hypostatic union can happen. Here's how she can be pregnant without the aid of a human being. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you, so that, and notice what the angel wants to stress at the end of verse 35, the Holy One. And so in other words, this, this child in the womb will not be smeared with the taint of Adam's sin. He'll be placed in the womb, 
but he will be the Holy One. He'll be called the Son of God. And once again, answering the how question, look at verse 37. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things about this discussion about the virgin conception. Notice the modest way in which these things are spoken. We live in an age that is so filled with double entendre and euphemisms and crudities. Do you notice the incredible modesty? There's not even any embarrassment to read these words in front of children. This is how the Holy Spirit describes these matters. And notice in verse 34, look carefully at it. The influence or impact or input of a human father for Jesus is completely ruled out. Joseph is put to the side as a potential father. And notice when Mary asks the why question in verse 34, the angel answers, But the accomplishment of Mary's pregnancy is utterly miraculous and supernatural. For those who say a a virgin conception is impossible, look what the angel has placed in Scripture in verse 37. The angel says, oh, oh, by the way, let me correct this objection that will be raised. That's biologically impossible. The angel says, already considered that objection. This is the sovereign God. This is the omnipotent God. Nothing is impossible with him. If he can speak worlds and galaxies and solar systems into existence in the space of six 24-hour days, he can place the Son of God in the womb of a woman. The fact that a human father is not in the mix tells us that the sin nature is transmitted by the Father. Ladies, feel free at this moment to elbow your husband and say, See, I told you so. But the Holy Spirit protects the prenatal Jesus from any taint of Adamic original sin so that he can be called, look at verse 35, the Holy One. If Jesus were conceived the same way everyone since Cain and Abel were, he would have the poison of original sin transmitted to him. He'd be a sinner by nature in need of a Savior. But the Holy Spirit kept the infant Christ in the womb immaculate. When you hear the term immaculate conception, that's what is meant, is the Holy Spirit kept pure the human nature of Jesus so that he would be without sin. Therefore, it can be said that Christ was made sin for us, but he was never a sinner. And so let me remind you what the church has always understood and believed. If you're thinking this morning, I I think I'm the first person who's ever dreamed of this. This is what the church has always confessed. All Christians from Protestant to Roman Catholic to Greek Orthodox confess this in their public theology. All historic creeds of the church, from the Apostles' Creed to the Nicene Creed to the Athanasian Creed, all state this, and especially all Reformation creeds, such as the 39 Articles of the Anglicans or the Augsburg Confession of the Lutheran Church, and especially our Westminster Confession, have included this and fleshed it out in their formal public theology. 
And so right now, if you're still scratching your head and saying, I don't think I need to buy this to be a Christian. I think I can call myself a Christian without affirming the virgin conception of Christ. My friend, if you deny this article of faith, you stand apart from 2,000 years of Christendom. To the person this morning who says, the virgin conception. Carl, I'm, I'm a scientific modern. The virgin conception is a bridge too far. Then you'll not believe in creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. You'll not believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. You'll not believe in the miracles of Jesus. You'll not believe in the, the parting of the Red Sea and the tumble-down walls of Jericho. So, my friend, I would plead with you. Repent and believe. Believe in the Jesus of the Bible. Not a Jesus of your own liking, but the Jesus revealed in the pages of Scripture. Believe in the Jesus who is conceived by a virgin. Believe in the Jesus who lived a sinless life for 33 years, never sinning once in word, thought, or deed. Believe in the Jesus who died a substitutionary death. Believe in the Jesus who came up out of the grave on the third day. And believe in the Jesus who ascended into heaven. My friend, if you don't believe in the virgin conception, then you don't believe in any fulfilled prophecy. If Jesus were not conceived by a virgin, the Bible is in error and ceases to be a trustworthy guide on any subject, whether God, creation, salvation, ethics, or eternity. This morning is a call for you to see that God, by his providence, from day one, his plan was to bring forth a redeemer who is not tainted with the sin of Adam, who would be your substitute. Let's pray together. Our Father, how we praise you for the glory of your providence, that you so designed a salvation that would provide for us a Redeemer who was fully human in every way, but without the taint of sin, doing so by the virgin conception of Mary. And so, Lord, we would praise you. We would stand in awe and wonder at your wisdom and the glory of your providence. We pray this with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen.